from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. Welcome to this special edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. This Saturday is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. To mark this historic milestone, we remember the individuals who lost their lives and commemorate those who worked tirelessly to save others. On this special program of Government Matters, we want to bring you three stories from federal workers who were in the midst of what would become the deadliest attack on American soil. Here with me now is Roberta Chrissy. She's the chief of the Military Personnel Division for the Army Corps of Engineers. On 9-11, she was a lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon working for the Deputy Chief of Staff for Personnel. Roberta, welcome. Thank you for having me this morning. Tell me about that day. How did it start? What were you doing? Well, I arrived uh, at the Pentagon that morning and I ran into my boss um, and he told me at, at that time that General Ma Maud, our G1, had wanted to see me about a question. And I had told him that I would go over to see General Maud right after the meeting that uh, our section was having. So we had our meeting and then um, the, I guess the television was airing that the North Tower had been hit. And so uh, I went over to my boss and I said, I'm going to go see General Maud to see what his uh, questions are. And he had said, uh, don't worry, I've already taken care of that. So um, we had a new employee, her name was Karen Wagner, and I was her battle buddy and getting her trained up. And um, at that point in time, everyone was uh, hunkered around the TV station, watch, uh, the TV watching uh, what was happening in New York. And what were you thinking at the time? Were you thinking we're under attack or? There's just been a, an accident? I had thought that it was just an accident at that point in time. And I am a workaholic and I thought to myself, well, I really need to get back to my job. So I don't have time to be watching the TV. So what I did is I went back to my desk along with my battle buddy, Karen Wagner, and we were working. And at that point, our boss came in and said that the crisis action team, the CAT, had been activated. And, and he identified one of the people that we worked with to go down to the Army Activation Center and um, represent our section down there. And so I had indicated that I needed a document from that location from the, uh, that was classified and I needed to get down there as well. So I was going with her, we left our cubicles and we went out of our office space and at that moment the, um, the plane hit. Now I didn't know it was a plane, I had thought it was a bomb and because the ceiling was crashing in and the lights, it went dark. And so um, one of the um, soldiers said, hit the ground. So we got on the ground and waited for any further instruction. And then he said, okay, everyone evacuate. So we made our way through the darkness, finally out into the center courtyard there at the Pentagon. And we could look up and see the smoke in the section that we had just come from. Now, at this time, you don't realize that there's a connection between what's happening in New York and this 
explosion essentially at the Pentagon. No, no, I'm still thinking it was a bomb, and I had thought that the uh, New York was was an accident. But at that point in time, um, someone when we were out in the center courtyard of the Pentagon, someone started yelling. There's another plane coming. Uh, you get across the street past 395 um, and, and get further away from the Pentagon. So I'm, st I'm still with uh, uh, the person I left with. Her name was uh, Linda Herbert. And we uh, moved through the parking lot over to the Double Tree Hotel at that point in time. And when you turned back, to look at the Pentagon, what did you see? I saw billowing smoke. It was just um, so much smoke in the air at that point in time. And what were your feelings at the time? My feelings were um, something really bad has happened and life is not going to be the same going forward. I thought to myself, my wallet, my keys, uh, my medical records, everything that I have um, was in, in where my office space was, and I thought, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do at this point in time. And it, also, what I was looking for is my boss. I'm looking for accountability to identify, to see if I can find my boss and let him know I'm okay, because that's what we do in the military is accountability. So, I, uh, but I never did see him that day. I never did see him. And were you able to get home? What did you do after that? Well, um, we were. I was at the DoubleTree Hotel, and we were. Uh, there was a long line, and I had to use a ladies' room. And I said, "Is this the? You know, is this the line to the ladies' room?" And they're like, "No, this is the payphone." And I'm like, "Well, I don't have any money." So, um, but I ended up. They they um, housed us there for several hours. The DoubleTree Hotel Hotel did. And eventually they brought in phones so that we could call our families and let them know that we were okay. So at that point in time, I called a friend and uh, asked if, if they could come pick me up, which they did, and, and brought me home. But when I was going south on 395, it looked like um, a battle zone because people were walking along the side of the road, smoke was in the background coming out of the Pentagon, and it just looked horrendous. Roberta, at what point did you find out that a lot of your coworkers, people in your office, didn't make it and, and were killed that day? Um, I found out the next day. When I got home, um, there were spouses of uh, service members that I worked with. They were calling me at home, asking me if they had seen their, uh, their husband, their wife. Um, and I was really careful. I was like, no, I haven't seen them, but it could be that they are just trying to make their way home now. They could be in the hospital. Um, you know, don't panic that... Um, you know, I was really concerned and didn't think that anyone had in my section had been killed at that point in time. And General Maud, who you were supposed to be in his office at that time, I was. he was killed. He was killed. And I, you know, I look at that as it wasn't my time because I was headed over to see him and I would have been in his office when the plane hit and just so thankful that, you know, that, that wasn't my time. And had you been in your office, 
you probably would have been killed as well. Yes, all of the file cabinets had tumbled over when the when the plane came in. It blocked the doors where people couldn't get out of um, the space that they were in. They they were suffocated by by the smoke inhalation. Primarily, is my understanding. And and in the days in the weeks that followed, you were in an alternate location. How were you feeling at that time? Well, um, there were two um, things that I think about in the days that followed. We were over um, in Alexandria for three and a half months after because our office didn't exist anymore. Um, we were dealing with uh, families and their funerals for their, um, for their loved ones that had died in our section. And then also uh, our mission. Our, you know, we were doing policy and, and promotion and selection boards, and that continued on. So we had a, a, a major mission with those two areas. Is the anniversary very emotional for you? It is. Um, it makes me think of the heroes that day. Um, uh, my boss, Carl Knobloch, he was tremendous. We lost some great Americans that day. Karen Wagner, Bill Ruth. Um, Kip Taylor, so many people that we lost that day, and it's very, very, um, it's very hard to reflect that because it seems like just yesterday in many, many ways. Roberta, thanks so much for coming in and sharing that story for us. Thank you very much for having me. Coming next, two former officials from the Federal Aviation Administration share their story about when the planes were hijacked and the disastrous endings for the flights. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the view from the skies on 9-11. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Twenty years ago on 9-11, the FAA was at the epicenter of trying to explain and respond to a plane crash into the Twin Towers and the realization that passenger jets had been hijacked. Two former FAA leaders recount their experiences on that day and how it changed the agency. Greg Dvorak is Chief Commercialization Officer at Airspace Operations Platform, Aereo. On 9-11, he was Director for Operational Support for the National Airspace System. Terry Biggio is a Senior Director at SEIC. Twenty years ago, he was the FAA's Operations Manager at the Boston Center. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you, Mimi. Greg, you were based in D.C., but you were actually in Boston giving a speech that day. Tell us about how the day unfolded for you. Yeah, I was giving a talk on, of all things, uh, configuration control of software for the air traffic control system. <clears throat> and one of my assistants came up to me and said, hey, something happened in New York City. Um, we need to go take a look at this. And um, my organization was responsible for the air traffic control system, the actual operating system. So anytime that there was a crash, um, we immediately became involved because we need to make sure that the system didn't play a role in the crash. So uh, we happened to be in a hotel that day. So we went to the lobby and we met and uh, we started to talk to our team about what just happened. Because at that moment, we didn't know what size aircraft flew into the tower. We didn't know the impact of what happened at the tower. And <clears throat> at that same time, the news was on in the lobby. So we did get to see the second plane hit. And so as soon as we saw that, we, we knew immediately that this is much bigger than anything we've ever seen and that it was not due to a system error or system anomaly. This was something much bigger. 
And Terry, where were you on 9-11? What, what was happening for you that morning? Sure, maybe so for me, we were, I was at Boston Center, which is actually in Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, the center is where our air traffic controllers provide air traffic control services. And Boston Center is a facility with about 350 controllers, uh, 30 radar scopes. Um, we had uh, about 70 controllers working that day and our operation was running smoothly. It was a nice sky blue clear VFR day that uh, we expected to just be a normal operation for us. And then when the first plane hit, what happened? So for us, it happened much, you know, much sooner than that. So about 8.24 in the morning, we realized that we had the hijack and we were processing that hijack and trying to make sure that we got the word out to the rest of the FAA through our command center in uh, Virginia but to let Terry, them know that we... But how did you know you had a hijack situation? Sure. So we learned that we had a hijack situation that started with one of our controllers had tried to contact American 11. Uh, American 11 was unresponsive. Right after that, the transponder, which is a device that we track on radar that allows us to get uh, speed and altitude of American 11, that uh, was turned off. And uh, shortly thereafter, we heard a series of three transmissions over 10 minutes where the hijacker thought that he was transmitting to the passengers in the back, but he was actually transmitting over our air traffic control frequency, which gave us the heads up as to what we were facing. And what did you hear him say? So we, it's, so the first transmission we didn't hear right away. And that was important to us because that was the transmission where uh, Muhammad Ada led off with, we have planes as in plural. So that was not caught initially. We had to go back and pull the tape, which at that time was a, a large cassette tape, which is about an inch wide, 14 tracks to try to dig that up. But there were two other transmissions that followed where these, the hijacker is trying to keep the, the airplane calm. Don't anybody move. Don't do anything stupid. We're going back to the airport. It wasn't until about nine o'clock in the morning when American 11 had already hit the World Trade Center. United 175 had just hit the Trade Center, and we had heard on the tape where the hijacker said that we have planes. So we didn't know if we had two, did we have three, did we have four, did we have five, but we knew we had a significant problem. And you also knew that this wasn't your typical hijacking situation where the hijackers make demands and you have to respond to that. Yeah, so initially the on our frequency and what they thought was going out back to the rest of the airplane was about you know, trying to make, they're going to make demands when they get to the airport. Normal hijacks, if there are normal hijacks, would normally be go to an airport, land, and then make those demands. In this particular case, we had no idea that they would be using uh, an airliner as a, um, as a weapon. And Terry, at what point does the, I guess the center back here in the Washington area say, bring all the planes down? Sure. So when you put everything in a series, all the data points matter. The three transmissions from American 11 and then hitting the World Trade Center, United 175, uh, American 77 actually came within six miles of the White House before it turned around and went back to the uh, to the Pentagon. But it was about nine o'clock in the morning when those pieces came together in which the we, we knew that we had more than one, but we had no idea as to the, the scale. Okay, we're going to take a, a really quick uh, pause here, but we're going to come back and continue our conversation with Greg and Terry about their experiences on 9-11.
The FAA is responsible for the National Air Traffic Control System and worked to shut down the system during the 9-11 attacks in 2001. Greg Dvorak and Terry Biggio are with me. Um, Greg, let me ask you about the fighter jets that were scrambled. Um, this is, I guess this would happen in the event of a hijacked passenger jet. Um, tell us what happened and what went into that decision. Well, the decision to actually do a scramble is more on Terry's side. Um, what ended up happening with me is um, shortly after 9-11, within a week, I found myself working for with the military on behalf of the FAA administrator, um, enabling the Air Force the opportunity to see and talk to their fighter jets as they made those scrambles around the country. Prior to 9-11, when they scrambled the jet, the jet was under FAA control, and that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't suffice for the decisions that that fighter jet had to make, or the pilot and the fighter jet. But had. Greg, how could uh, an Air Force fighter jet be under the control of the FAA? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, um, well, in the United States at that time, the military's uh, system, air traffic control system, only looked outward from our borders. So there was a ring around the United States, but there was a hole in the middle. So inside the, the United States, um, the military could not see their own fighter jets or talk to their own fighter jets. That was all done through the FAA. And that, that turned out to be a, a problem that had to be corrected. Because it would be a, essentially a, a military general telling the FAA, could you talk to my pilot and tell him to take down this passenger jet? That's, that's true. Um, they stood up a, an operation called Operation Noble Eagle uh, shortly after 9-11, <clears throat> and basically it was the shoot to kill program that said that if it was necessary to shoot down a commercial jet, the orders to do that could only be given by certain generals or the president himself. So that command had to go directly from the president, from the general to the fighter pilot that was going to uh, launch whatever kind of armament. Um, the FAA had the ability to see that jet and talk to that jet, but the military didn't. So we spent the next year um, provisioning the military with all the services that they needed to see their fighters and talk to their fighters, no matter where they were in the United States. And Terry, can we go back to uh, what you were saying about when the decision came to bring everything down on the ground? What, when, what was involved in getting so many airplanes out of the sky and onto the ground? Sure. Great question, Mimi. So when you look at our air traffic control system, at that time in the morning, there were about 4,500 flights that were in the air. And the decision to land aircraft is not something that any of us would have ever envisioned. It took, I mean, we talk about air traffic control being the ultimate team sport because we have 310 facilities that are all working in sync to provide safe services on a daily basis. Now, how do you go out and get a hold of all 315 facilities and start telling aircraft they're not going to their destination. They're going to land within our airspace, and that's the bottom line. So we mapped out a strategy in regards to the order came. We mapped out a strategy with our controllers, with our supervisors. They went back, and they carried out that mission. So like in Boston Center's situation, we covered airspace over seven states. We had aircraft that were either going overseas. They could have been going to L.A., and we told them, you have to land in our airspace. Those were the orders, and there was no deviating from them because we didn't know how many more attacks we were going to experience, and it was all happening real time. So, you know, it was a well-coordinated effort 
with everybody on the same page. And to do that without incident, to land 4,500 planes in such a short period of time that has never, ever been done before was just a phenomenal feat. And Terry, I know that obviously air travel has changed tremendously since 9-11. How has air traffic control changed since 9-11? So there's an awful lot of steps. You know, when you look at aviation in general, everything that we do today is based on some of the things that we've done in our past. So in our particular case on the air traffic control side, we have indicators such as the first aircraft, we lost communication and then we lost a transponder. That would mean to us that there's a catastrophic failure of some sort. But what it was, because we lost communication, we now have indicators for the controllers to make sure that there's a visual indicator on their radar screen that shows they're actually in communication with aircraft. We have a telecom that has been in operation since 9-11 and has never been um, closed that still is in effect today. And it's, it's, a, it's a venue where, or a mechanism where all the other agencies that deal with the safety and security of the United States have an open line to the FAA, and we can talk about these things real time, just like we did on 9-11. We stood up that phone call at about 8.30, and it has been in place for the last 20 years. And Greg, very briefly, how are the skies safer now as a result of 9-11? I think it goes back to what Terry talked about in terms of you know the way we monitor traffic, the way we capture traffic, the way we record the data. Um, you know, There's expectations in the sky of what aircraft are supposed to do and what they should be doing. Um, and they're closely monitored when they go off course. So uh, I, I think there's a, a higher level of awareness and to Terry's point, um, not just amongst the FAA, but all the partners that support the FAA, that if something abnormal happens, there's plans in place on how to deal with the abnormalities quickly. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences with us that, this, that day 20 years ago. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And we want to hear from you. Tell us what you thought about today's special edition of Government Matters. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Government Matters, covering the events of 9-11 20 years later. We remember those who lost their lives that day and those who worked so hard to save others during the attacks. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.